0: What traditions does your family have? One of the traditions I enjoyed growing up as a child was that every Thanksgiving my family would gather, uh, usually at my aunt's house, and inevitably, what would happen after we had feasted upon all of those wonderful delights of Thanksgiving food, right? The turkey and the cranberry sauce and the, the apple pie, all, all that was done. We, we would just get around and we would have some coffee, maybe some tea, and we would rehearse stories that we all already knew. I mean, inevitably, I would hear the story about how I tried to dry a suede couch with a blow dryer and subsequently caught it on fire. Or, or the time that I, I drove my car accidentally, i was 13 or 14, I don't remember, uh, through a wall in my home. Right? Things they would never let me forget as members of my family. We would just rehearse these stories. And I think part of the reason that, that we do this, and maybe your family does this, is because stories have a way of connecting us to the past and bringing the past into the present. I think this is especially important as As we get older, and life changes, there's not as much shared experience. Children leave home. People move away. Others pass away. And yet the stories remain. I have a way of reminding those present of a shared past, of their identity as a family, of a way of renewing our love and affection for one another. All of our traditions have underneath of them a teaching component. Traditions tell stories. Right? Traditions teach. This is true even if we look at our calendar in our our country, right? So we have the 4th of July coming up. And what does the 4th of July teach us? Well, it teaches about our nation's declaration of independence and, and fireworks burst in the air. Those explosions in the sky tell us all about the freedom that we fought for and have won. Thanksgiving reminds us of the gratitude we are to have to God who is the giver of all good gifts. Christmas reminds us that God became a man, and entered the world in order to save us from darkness and sin. Easter reminds us that Jesus had to die and resurrect in order to save us from death. All of these traditions teach. Many of them are tied to the calendar. Uh, the calendar speaks. And that's precisely what's going on in Leviticus chapter 23. God intends to teach his people through their calendar. He's saying to him, This is your calendar, and on these days you are going to set them aside, gather together to remember, rest, and worship me. And the festival we come to this morning. The festivals of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Typically, just as shorthand, we call this the Feast of Passover because they're just so so married together. And what we'll find that God wants to communicate through this date on the calendar, what he wants to remind the people of, is of their redemption and of their identity. He wants to remind the people who they are and whose they are. They are the people of God, and they belong to God. That's our main idea this morning, is that God delivers his people from slavery and death, and the exhortation is that we should believe and teach the story of redemption. Let's pray together, and we will get started this morning. Father, we come to you. Confessing our forgetfulness. In the midst of our smiling prosperities, we are prone to take no thought of you. In our embarrassment of riches, we become fat and happy and fail. to give you the praise and worship that you are due. In the midst of our busy lives, we choose other things rather than focusing our attention on you. Forgive us. Change us. Help us to center ourselves on Christ alone. Set our affections once more again this Lord's Day on Christ as we remember our redemption and renew our commitment to you and to one another. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So look with me at Leviticus chapter 23. you will start in in verse 4. Remember, Uh, Everything has been predicated on the Sabbath. The whole chapter is organized around the number seven, seven festivals. Verse 4. These are the Lord's appointed times, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Passover to the Lord comes in the first month at twilight on the 14th day of the month. The festival of unleavened bread to the Lord is on the 15th day of the same month. For seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you are to hold a sacred assembly. You are not to do any daily work. You are to present a fire offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day there will be a sacred assembly. Do not do any daily work. And so we are given a picture of how these festivals are to work. Right on the 14th day, they're going to celebrate the Passover in the evening. And then on the 15th day, right after that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins, where they're going to eat unleavened bread for seven straight days. All of this is aimed at recalling or remembering the Passover. Wonderful events of Exodus when God's people were made God's people, saved out of slavery, And to get a a better feel for the story that undergirds this festival that is ordained in Leviticus 23, we're going to turn our attention back to a people in slavery, plagues, and to the Exodus. Look with me at Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to settle down there for a little while. I'm going to read to you the first 14 verses chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. And so just, just note that this Passover lamb is being picked out on the 10th day and it's going to hang out on these families until the 14th day when it is sacrificed. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each one will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it either from the sheep or from the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood... And put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it, roasted over fire, along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You are to eat in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. And so kind of in the middle of the story in Exodus, we are given these instructions for the Passover. Before God has even delivered his people, he intends for them to celebrate this festival and to remember his mighty works, to remember that he defeated the gods of Egypt. Did you see that? Right there in in verse 12. I will execute judgment not only against the Egyptians and the Israelites who fail to, by faith, do what God says, but his judgment is coming against all the gods of Egypt So all of the false gods that the Egyptians worship are going to be shown to be impotent when they find themselves facing off against the one true God who is. And so how did we get to this point, right? You guys remember the story of the Exodus? Uh, Joseph goes down, he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, and then all of his family moves down into Egypt with him. And God, in fulfilling his promise to Abraham, multiplies his descendants. They fill up the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh, the one who arises after Joseph has passed away, he, he doesn't know who Joseph was. That's how the book opens. There arose a Pharaoh, a king, who did not know Joseph. And he looks around and he sees all these Israelites and he says, This is a problem. Because if they decide to rebel, we're in a lot of trouble. And so his prescription for this threat is brutal slavery, enslaves God's people. And as the story progresses, we see God's people cry out to God in their distress. And we read at the end of chapter 2 that that God hears, God knows, and God remembers. He, He decides that he is going to keep the next part of that covenant with Abraham And deliver his descendants out of Egypt. And the way he decides to do that is through the leadership of Moses and these marvelous, miraculous works that we often call plagues. And each of these plagues corresponds to a deity that would exist inside of Egypt. I think the easiest way to see this is when you look at the Nile. The Nile was this this god of life. All of Egypt's life comes from the Nile. What happens? Well, god turns the Nile to blood, showing I am I am greater than this so-called god that you worship, and so to all of the plagues. And that brings us to this final plague, which is going to be death upon the firstborn. You go, why why would the firstborn in the family die? Well, it's because all of the hopes and dreams of a particular family were vested in that one person. The firstborn was seen as the representative of the whole family. And in Pharaoh's case, his firstborn son was considered to be deity. Pharaoh himself was considered to be a god. And so you can see all of these plagues are building to where God is showing he is superior over every god in Egypt and he is superior to Pharaoh, the god himself. And he's going to demonstrate this by this great judgment. Over and over again as we walk through the plagues, we hear Moses telling Pharaoh to let my people go and over and over again Pharaoh refuses because God has hardened his heart. God has resolved to get glory over Pharaoh. God has resolved to show himself sovereign over everything. He has resolved to execute judgment against the sins of the people of Egypt and against all of Egypt's gods. We read in verse 23, When the Lord passes through to strike Egypt and sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, he will pass over the door and not let the destroyer enter your house to strike you. Again, notice in this judgment that is coming that Israel is not exempt. One pastor comments, The blood is a sign of salvation for the Israelites. But notice, it was not just the Egyptians who were subject to God's wrath and deserved his punishment. God does not say that the Israelites were exempt from the judgment just because they were Israelites or because they lived better lives than the Egyptians. No, the Israelites themselves were under God's wrath, and so they needed to be protected. If they would be saved it would not be because God's justice had no claim against them. It would be because God saw the blood on the door frames, the blood of the sacrificial substitute. He would, in grace, pass over that house as he judged. Spread upon the door frames, the blood of the lamb symbolically covered those within within the walls whose own blood rightfully should have been shed in penalty. Or their sins all deserve the judgment of God and the only people who escape that judgment are those who in obedience to God's command obey by putting their faith in God's provision for sin Christian we can we can see the gospel within this can we not Substitution is at the very heart of both sin and salvation. I mean, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. All of us have a little Pharaoh within us, don't we? We sit upon the throne of our own lives, and we do whatever we want. When we want, we call the shots. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. Not even God. We've got, we've got the role of ruler in our lives covered, God. No thank you. Little pharaohs governing our own universes, following our hearts rather than listening to God's voice. We are treasonous subjects who deserve the king's judgment and yet god does not end us immediately does not hang us as traitors but instead by his grace resolves to save us by sending christ jesus to hang on the cross in our place for our sins Those who are saved are are those who take shelter beneath the blood of Christ by confessing Him as Lord and Savior, by following Him in the obedience of baptism. People of God, those who are saved, are those who have faith in God's promises and take hold of those promises by putting their faith in a substitute that God has provided. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, take shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb before it's too late. Don't be like Pharaoh who obstinately refused to listen to what God had said over and over and over again. Because eventually God's patience runs out. Eventually, the clock strikes midnight on God's patience. And judgment falls. Look with me at verse 29. Now, at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. In every house in Egypt there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. And there was great mourning. Those who refused the mercy of God, who refused to shelter beneath the blood of a substitute, found themselves underneath of God's just punishment. Death came. And the response of Pharaoh and the Egyptians is to say to the Israelites, get out. Get out of here as fast as you can. And the Israelites, as they're leaving, they're leaving so quickly, there's not even enough time for bread to rise. See the unleavened piece of this? That's how quickly they're leaving. And it is a funny note, they ask the Egyptians for things on their way out. Like, hey, can I have some of that gold before I go? Yes, yes, take the gold, take my gems, take all that you need, just just go. And so they plunder the Egyptians in fulfillment of God's promise, I think back in chapter four. There's also another interesting note as they leave Egypt in this mass exodus. We read in verse 38, A mixed multitude or crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. And so, what we see is that the only people, the the people leaving Egypt are not just Israelites, they're also Egyptians and people from other backgrounds. It is a mixed multitude. Other people have seen who this God is, they've seen these signs and these wonders, and they've said, hey, if this God can do this to Egypt and to Pharaoh, he must be the true God. And they go out with the Egyptians. And so we see again a pieces of that promise to Abraham being fulfilled even now in Exodus as the descendants of Abraham bring blessing to the nations, to those who would have faith. They go out and, and we, we remember the, the sea splits and, and eventually the waters cover over Pharaoh and those who follow him in judgment. God's people make their way to Sinai where they receive the commandments and enter into the Mosaic Covenant. It's a fantastic story. I mean, it must have been incredible to, to watch these thousands upon thousands exiting from Egypt. I mean, just imagine, um, you know, Times Square at New Year's, Eve, New Year's Eve, right? All those people just jam-packed in there. And just imagine all of them trying to exit New York by just, by walking, of course, <laughs> all at the same time. Right? It's a It's an incredible scene, and this is the way that God decided to display his glory to Egypt and to all the nations around Egypt. It's the way that he decided to announce his greatness and his superiority, his sovereignty over all the nations, over all the world. And it's this event that Passover remembers So, so why celebrate this event? Well, well of course, God commands it. He commands it in, in Exodus. He commands it in Leviticus. But there are some, there are some other pieces to it, as well. Look with me at verse twenty-four. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you, you are to reply, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. And so the people knelt low and worshiped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And look at verse 3 of chapter 13 in Exodus. Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. And so we can see that they're keeping this festival in order to remember what God has done and to renew their commitment to the Lord. They're remembering their identity as God's people. They're remembering their love for God. And they are recommitting. They're re-upping. They're renewing their covenant with the Lord. They're saying, we still need God's gracious provision. We still need fellowship with God if we are to survive as a people. It's a wonderful celebration. The meal also had a teaching mechanism in it, right? You're supposed to say, uh, when a child will eventually ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? Why do we do this? And the response is to be, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. There's another version of it in chapter 13 that says, why is this night different from any other night? And the response is, it is because of what the Lord did for me. The meal is to teach about God. It keeps some from forgetting who God is and who they are, and it teaches others who have not yet understood the story of redemption that they can have that story as their own. It's also really interesting how God planned the Israelite calendar and uses it to point to Christ. A lot of these festivals actually correspond to events in Jesus' life. The Passover is, is chief among them. One of the things we notice right away is during the Holy Week, it is Passover week. And Jesus is actually together with his friends to eat this Passover meal when he changes it. I mean, Jesus has already made the day a little awkward by uh, washing the feet of his disciples. But this, this is next level. Mark chapter 14, verse 22, we read. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing, it broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so the context for this meal is the Passover. They have been through this tradition at least dozens of times. And so they kind of know how the evening goes. We do this, and then we do this. And Jesus stands up, and he interrupts the normal process. And he says, "Take, this is my body." You can imagine, just imagine sitting there. you've been through it, you're, you're you now crunching that delicious, unleavened bread between your teeth,!" thinking about the Passover. And Jesus says, "Actually, this meal it's not really about the Passover. It's all about me. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's tantamount to uh, somebody standing up at a wedding. Maybe, maybe the best man. They usually are the ones who act foolishly. You know, happy couples married. They're sitting up there and everybody's giving their toast and the best man takes up the microphone and says, I know that, that they got married today, but, but really what this day is about is me. It's actually my birthday today. Did you all know that? Right? And, and just talks about his birthday and it lasts, you know, however many years of his life. It would be really inappropriate. And that's what Jesus is doing. If Jesus is anybody else but God, this doesn't make any sense. He's changing the meal. He's saying the, the bread that you eat, yes, it represents the, the bread, the, the affliction of Egypt and slavery but ultimately it's now going to represent my body that will be broken and afflicted for my people. This wine will represent not the blood that was spread upon wooden doorways, but my blood which will be splattered upon a wooden cross. This meal anticipates What Jesus will do for his people. How Jesus will procure for us salvation from a greater slavery than that experienced by Israel. A slavery to sin. And how he will free us from a greater enemy than Egypt. Death itself. This is a story. The Lord's Supper the transformed Passover tells the story of the greatest exodus there ever was. God's ransoming and rescuing of his people out of death and into life. And that's why we celebrate it. Celebrate it because it causes us to remember that which we so easily forget. It's an opportunity for us to remember our redemption, our union with Christ. It also reminds us of our union with one another by virtue of being in Christ. It's an opportunity to recommit ourselves, to renew our commitment to God and to one another. It reminds God's people of their identity in Christ. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper, we, we try to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Since all of us share the one bread. And here, here kind of the logic. It says, we are united to Jesus, therefore we are united to one another. And he shows this in a metaphorical way, he's saying, you all take of this one bread, right? And this is symbolic of how you have all trusted in the one Savior, Jesus, and you are one people. But the Lord's Supper is a community creating and church identifying ordinance. I love what bobby jameson says on on this passage Um, and you can get it there's a little book in the back called understanding the lord's supper you can read it in an afternoon it's really really short Uh, but this is what he says our fellowship with christ creates fellowship with each other as a local church we are one body because we share in the one bread and all that it represents because we are united to christ we are united to each other in him We see that the Lord's Supper is, in part, creating the reality to which it points. Our in-Christness together. And so I think sometimes we we miss this aspect of it when we, uh, you know, always, I think I grew up this way. uh, You take the Lord's Supper and and you just shut your eyes and you confess your sins, good things to do, and we ignore everyone else around us. So it's this very individualistic experience. But that's, that's the opposite of how we see the Lord's Supper celebrated in the New Testament. It's not that these elements of confession of sin and, um, you know, enjoying the forgiveness of God are absent. It's that there's more. It's that and relationship with other people. The, the meal is a fellowship meal, right? We studied the fellowship offering. And, and especially in the early church, it was often celebrated in concert with a, a full meal, which is why I really like when we take the Lord's Supper and then we have a potluck afterwards, right? Because we're, we're eating together and we're expressing that we are in Christ together. We're, we're trusting in him. We are at peace with God. We, we are the family of God and this is our family tradition as we eat our family meal. It's a family meal that's centered on Christ. Note that too in Mark when Jesus is transforming the Passover of all these elements that are mentioned, but the lamb, which would have been the centerpiece of the meal, is not mentioned. And I think Mark does this intentionally. The lamb of the God on the table is not mentioned because the lamb of God is at the table. He's bringing the attention to Jesus as he fulfills what John says, that indeed he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see this even more clearly in John 19. You can turn there with me if you like. John 19. Jesus, already having celebrated the supper and been arrested, comes before Pilate. And we read, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Were slapping him in the face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man! And the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves. I find no grounds for charging him. We have the law, replied the Jews. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. And so Pilate said to him, Do you refuse refuse to speak to me? Don't you know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release Jesus, but the Jews shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but an Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, Here is your king. And they shouted, Take him away! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? The priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Did you notice in verse 14, it was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. That's not a throwaway line from John. John is bringing our attention to the fact that Jesus is a Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God had arranged for Jesus to be crucified by the decision of wicked men on the Friday afternoon when the lambs were killed in preparation for the festival of the Passover. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Just as God delivered Hebrew slaves in Egypt from death when they put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, God also delivers every person from eternal death when they put their faith in Jesus, the lamb of God who shed his blood for our sin. Friends, the transformed Passover, the Lord's Supper, brings past and the future, into our present. The Lord's Supper is the church's tradition. It's our family tradition, and this tradition, it teaches. It teaches about how we were saved out of our sin, death, the eternal judgment of God that we deserved, and given the blessing that only Jesus Christ deserves. He took the cross so that we could have relationship with God. Lord's Supper reminds us of that past, brings it into the present. And it reminds us of the future when Christ will return alive to make all things new. When he will return to put an end to sin and to celebrate together with all who have called upon his name and submitted to his lordship. We will all drink of the fruit of the vine together with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, as we prepare to take the supper now, I think we do do well to ask ourselves questions Similar to the questions that were asked in the original Passover. Why is this meal different from any other meal? And it is because of what the Lord did for me. This meal teaches. We ought to use it as an opportunity to teach one another, to teach our children when they ask us, why do we have these? miniature little juice cups and those tiny pieces of bread. We are remembering the death and resurrection of our Lord. The meal teaches. We want to use it as an opportunity to teach the story of redemption. And the story of redemption is the best story the world has ever known. We should we should be sharing this good news with our family and our friends throughout the week, with words. Maybe you invite them here with you, and when we take the Lord's Supper, and they're like, "What was that all about? That seemed kind of weird, right?" We we have an opportunity to share. Just I think we get bored with the gospel, and that that there nothing could be more sinful. We were on vacation this past week in. Uh, we had a house on the beach, it was wonderful, and uh, Elliot called to me one day, and he said, look, look, you've got to come see this, it's amazing, it's amazing, come and see, come and see, and so, so I, you know, I, I get myself up, and I, I go out to see what he wants to point out, and he says, down there, down there, and I see a bunch of sand, of course, I'm like, okay, yeah, sand, it's great, cool, and he's like, no, 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 look, 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 and he explains that I'm looking at a pinching crab, right, as it's moving across the the sand. And I thought, this is how excited I should be about knowing Jesus Christ. This is how excited you should be about the gospel. You have news that is infinitely better than a sand crab. And yet how often do you share it? How eager are you to tell other people, you, I have the best news. Can I tell you about it? the most wonderful thing happened to me. It's amazing. Can I tell you about it? Friends, we ought to be those who are sharing the story of our redemption. We come together to enjoy this family meal so that we don't forget that story. So that we can recommit ourselves to Christ and to one another weekly. This is our family meal. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, I want you to know there's a seat for you at the family table. And the way you take that seat is by putting your faith in Christ and expressing that faith by being baptized. That's how you enter through the front door of God's household. Faith in Christ, expressed through baptism. And then, weekly, you will sit with us and enjoy this family meal as we eat and drink to the glory of Christ Jesus, who is our Passover lamb and our resurrected king, who was and is and is to come. Amen.